If I were to ask you who he was and you were to say an important dead German, you would be right. There were lots of those in the 19th century. Much of Protestant thought owes a deep, deep debt to them. Friedrich Schleiermacher's teachings gave us Karl Barth, who was the greatest theologian of the 20th century, I believe. One of the greatest thinkers we've ever known. He studied the scriptures and studied them and studied them and studied them and taught them and taught them and taught them. And And one day somebody said, Carl, what's the greatest thing you know? And he said, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Karl Barth was born out of opposition to Schleiermacher's teaching. Schleiermacher was trying to help the the church learn how to live after the Enlightenment. He thought himself nearly to craziness, it said. So much so that one day he was sitting on a park bench in a park looking destitute and sad and a policeman saw him and thought he was a vagrant. And he came up to him and he said, Sir, sir, and he shook him and got him to look up. And he looked at the old man in the eyes and said, Who are you? And Schleiermacher replied sadly, I wish I knew. He had pondered that question of who he was in a world that was changing so deeply that he had completely lost touch with who he was. Identity is a personal understanding of ourself. It's it's who we think we are, who we are, and whose we are. It's who we understand ourselves to be by our actions, by our thoughts, by our words, by everything we do, say, touch, feel, eat. We use words to define ourselves. And identity is the amalgamation of all those words. And sooner or later, we learn that for a relationship to be meaningful, it has to become personal. That sooner or later in a relationship, someone hangs a nickname on you like Lodi. Right, Scott? Isn't that right? Sooner or later... Some friend comes up and calls you some nickname you'd rather not have that I got in college that I ain't telling you. (laughs) Or this girl that you love calls you boo-boo and the whole family picks it up. And then your little nephew calls you boo-boo when you walk in the house and you think there's no getting out of this. Sooner or later for a relationship to be meaningful, it has to become personal. There has to be some claim, some confession over the other person that we're addressing. That's true in all of our relationships. Think about all the work we put into naming a child. Well, most people. I had a friend that taught elementary school who had a child named Famali. Apparently the parents couldn't decide what to name the little girl and they had to circle female on the birth certificate application and they figured that'd be a good name. And so they pronounced it Famali. She's probably the only one. But most of the time, we put a lot of thought into naming our children. I've known people who waited to see the child before they would even think about picking a name. We put great effort into naming our dogs, into naming any kind of animal. Just think about the effort we put into the naming that happens in a funeral service. We call it a eulogy. Where we name who the person was to us and talk about how deeply personal they were to us. How we saw them face to face. 
And that's when a relationship has meaning, when we name it. When we name it. Caesarea Philippi was at least a confused city. Its name had been changed several times over the years. In its earliest time, it was a cultural center for worship of the god Baal, B-A-A-L. If you've read any of the New Testament, you know that the god Baal was a constant thorn in the side of the Israeli people. The children of Israel were constantly lured away into worshiping Baal and other gods like Baal. Caesarea Philippi was a cultural center for the worship of that God. And then, later, it was a cultural center for the worship of the God Pan. There was a shrine in a cave there for the God Pan, who was the shepherd of panic. Right there in Caesarea Philippi, during the Hellenistic age, and during the Roman age, when the Romans came and took over and set up Herod the Great as king, Herod built the city up and changed its name to Caesarea And then his son changed it to Caesarea of Philip, or Caesarea Philippi as we inherit it in our English translations of the Bible, in honor of Augustus Caesar, who claimed to be son of God, because Julius Caesar had claimed to be God. That's the calamity and chaos that Jesus rode into in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples behind him into a place that was known as the seat of the God of panic, as the seat of a place where a God would dare to, a man would dare to say that he was God. The Prince of Peace rolled into that town. The Shepherd of Peace rolled into that town and asked his disciples, who do these people say I am? The people that have been coming, who do they say I am? It's interesting to me that Jesus would choose that region, a region that has such a confusion of religious and political idolatry in it, as the place where he would seek a confession from his disciples of who he was. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Right there in the midst of a shrine to the God of panic, right there in the midst of a temple devoted to a completely narcissistic horrible ruler who claimed to be God. The shepherd and prince of peace asked, who do people say I am? That part was likely easy for them to answer. I'm sure they had heard all of those people that they carried baskets of food to. Oh, he must be Elijah because Elijah did this same miracle. Oh, he must be Jeremiah Because Jeremiah told us to repent and we didn't repent and look what happened. We lost Jerusalem. It's easy to assume how they came to those thoughts and that it must have been the easy question to answer for the disciples. But the next question is hard because it's personal. But what about you? What about you, Jesus said? A deeply personal question of relationship. Who do you say I am? If you were to want to find out what people really think about you, that's the question you would ask. Not who am I, but who do you say that I am?
For a relationship to be meaningful, it has to have that kind of personal investment. To have words about that other person be on our lips. If we were to say, I love my wife, but never talk about my wife, surely I would be lying. If I were to say, or you were to say, I should say, I love my husband, and only ever say bad things about him, it would be hard to believe. If you were to say, I love my children, and have more pictures on your Instagram of fish than your child, it would be hard to believe. Stop laughing at me. It's rough when you step on your own feet, ain't it? To be meaningful, to be meaningful, a relationship has to have the investment of words about the other. And dear ones, we were only created for four kinds of relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with ourselves, and relationship with creation. And for us to have meaningful life, our words about our relationships must be positive and fruitful. They must be life-giving and affirming. Or otherwise, we turn into hateful old people that nobody likes. Because we have no investment in anyone. Jesus was asking His disciples to make the investment of confession in Him. The same thing that we do when we stand and read the creed. A confession that's a personal investment speaks about who a person is to us. Jesus is asking them to name Him the same way that we name Christ when we stand and use the creed in our worship. It establishes whose presence we're in. That we're not drawing together to just love each other, but to love God. It establishes who we're worshiping. And it establishes who we are. The church Catholic, the church universal, the body of Christ in this world. Forgiven of sin, joined together in holy communion and awaiting resurrection. But the creed can become rote if we never mean it. If all we say are words without reflection, without meaning, if I don't mean it when I say it, then it's not personal to me. But if I mean it when I say it, then it is a personal investment in the one of whom I speak. It becomes a confession. It becomes a manner of relationship. An admission that I, that you, that we belong to someone and something greater than ourselves. That we belong to Father, to Son, to Holy Spirit, and to their church, to the church of God. In the midst of all those shrines and temples of other gods, Jesus asked His disciple to make an affirmation of faith, to make a confession about Him, to invest themselves in Him personally. Who do you say that I am? I heard what you said about them, but what about you? Who am I to you? What do you confess about me? And Peter answered, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter makes his relationship with Jesus personal by naming the shape of how he understands Jesus in his own person, in his own heart, his own consciousness, in his own body, in himself. Who it is that he sees, the shape of his life, the meaning of his life, and everything about him that he understands is that he's Christ and Son of the living God. It's a confession born out of being Jesus' disciple because Peter couldn't say that if he hadn't have been Simon who got out of the boat and followed Jesus through the desert. It's a confession born out of seeing Jesus do things that were remarkable and unbelievable. It's a confession born in Him, revealed in Him, not by flesh and blood, but by God the Father. So that Peter could recognize the Son. Peter bears witness to what has been revealed to him by God the Father. Peter acts out of a desire to name personally who Jesus is. And there's a deepening of relationship through that witness. Because Jesus is the revelation of God to us. We're all here to bear that same witness. Our presence here says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. We've drawn together to worship you, to love you and adore you, and to set you up as Lord of our lives, to acknowledge that you are King and not me. We're here to bow before your throne, to love you, to worship you, to serve you. Our presence is a witness The hymns we sing are a witness. The creeds we say are a witness. The sermons we preach and hear are a witness. The act of hearing is a witness. Our witness. Our answer to the Lord's question, Who do you say that I am, Adna? We answer out of what's been revealed to us by the Father and the Spirit. You're the Christ the Son of the living God. And we live a witness to that in everything that we do. And it's that witness that unifies us, that makes us what we are, a community that loves and a community that is loved. Our purpose for being is to make that same witness, to make that same statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's everything we live for. And everything that competes with that is an idol and a God to be shunned. Now I know that's that's hard word in that season right when people start going missing because they've been tailgating at Clemson football game the night before. But it's still truth. We, in a land of our own that is filled with all kinds of shrines to all kinds of gods, whether they're wealth or violence, sex, alcohol, we set up a dizzying array of false gods in our nation. 
leaders that we expect to have all the answers. And in the midst of that, Christ is calling us to live a witness that He is the Son of God. That He is the Savior of the world. In the midst of that, He's asking us, who do you say that I am right there in all that chaos that you live in? We too are called to make a confession about the identity of Jesus. To make a personal investment in Him. To have a meaningful relationship built on our hearts and not just our lips. And the odd thing is that just for Peter, just as it was for him, it's in that confession that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of the living God that we really learn who we are. Slyermarker got lost in worrying about how Christianity was seen by enlightened people. He got lost in trying to defend the Son of God against intellectual attack and forgot to just live the Son of God. And he lost his own sense of himself, his own sense of who he was. We can look to Peter and see what confessing Christ can do for us as we inherit a new name. And our lives begin to take a new shape. And Peter, Peter became a leader of the church. The foundation of the church. The rock that the church was built on by Jesus Christ. Our identity is affirmed for us when we confess Christ. We are His people. And nothing else matters more than that. Not football, not wealth. Not baseball, basketball, our children's dance competitions, whatever it is, there is nothing more important than Christ, than worshiping and living for Christ. Much like those disciples, we live in an age of idolatry and are called to make an investment in the person of Jesus, to have a meaningful relationship with Him that our God can use to bring others to Christ. We are His church that He is building. A living witness to the love, mercy, and goodness of our God. Let us be that. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.